there, welcome to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken McDonald, former director of public prosecutions and barrister at Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen, also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in crime, public law and human rights law. So each week we look at uh, the law and at the politics that's affecting um, the law. And, and this week we're particularly delighted to have with us uh, Joe Sidhu QC, who is the chair of the Criminal Bar Association. The Criminal Bar Association is normally an association to promote the interests um, of criminal barristers and is normally concerned purely with matters of law, but it's become involved in a, a real political tangle um, in recent years with the government. So where better to discuss this with Joe than on a law um, and politics podcast? Joe, welcome to Double Jeopardy. My pleasure, Ken. I, I wanted to start by, by asking you a little bit about yourself, Joe. What, what brought you to the law? Um, what, what sort of practice you developed and, and how you became chairman of the Criminal Bar Association. So what was it that first attracted you to a career in the law? Well, I was a relatively late arrival to the law because I studied PPE at Wadham College in Oxford with the intention perhaps of going to the UN and working in development work in countries that needed help. Um, it was only when I was in my mid-20s that I thought to myself that I probably needed a vocation that would earn an income, and that's why I turned to law, and I did the conversion, uh, and eventually was called uh, at Lincoln's Inn in 1993. But my background was one of having been educated in a comprehensive school in a town called Southall in West London, which many people will know is a place with a high immigrant population, and my parents had, as many of them do, strong aspirations for my future. And so when I decided upon a, a course to go into law, it seemed to me that it was the best way for me to be able to represent people who needed help. So you became, so you became a criminal barrister. I, I've got a very similar background to, to yours in, in, in academic terms because I did PPE as well and, and later went on to become a, a criminal barrister. Why was it for you criminal law the, 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 the way forward? I think criminal law was attractive to me because it was the area of law which afforded the best opportunities to develop my skills as an advocate. And secondly, because the sort of people who get caught up in the criminal justice system tend to be especially vulnerable. And because a lot of my work that I'd done in the voluntary sector before I came formally into law was, in fact, to look after the interests of people who were being discriminated against and who were marginalized within society. So it was a natural fit for me to think about becoming a criminal lawyer particularly in defence work. And, and you, you, did, you, did, you, did, you did well, and um, you took Silk in 2012, and last year you were elected chair of the Criminal Bar Association. That's correct. I'd always given as much as I could to the bar. I'd done a number of, uh, made a number of contributions in voluntary work for, through the Bar Council, and I'd also been trying to promote the interests of uh, minorities at the bar and amongst solicitors as well by being president of the Society of Asian Lawyers for three or four years. So it was a, a natural progression, really, to think about representing colleagues at the criminal bar when I uh, pitched for the vice chair position at the CBA. And I think it was a good decision for me. Uh, it came uh, at a time when there was a lot of flux within the system, a lot of uh, unhappiness about the way in which the government was dealing with uh, criminal legal aid. So it landed on my lap. And that's why at the moment my main priority is managing an industrial dispute with government over very poor legal aid fees. Well, for listeners uh, who may not be aware of the details, I mean, obviously, Declaration of Interest, both Ken and I are um, members of the Criminal Bar Association. 
Um, but um, obviously there may be lots of people listening to this who aren't aware of the details of the uh, or the background to why the CBA balloted its members. So can you perhaps just fill in as briefly as you can? I know it's a complicated and lengthy story, how it came to pass that the CBA balloted and, and now effectively industrial action or strike action is being taken. This crisis within the criminal justice system and in the profession indeed has been brewing for some time. And we've been waiting for years for some sort of a settlement uh, to reflect the fact that we'd had a decline in our real earnings of about 28% over the last couple of decades. And the consequence of that is that we were seeing that there was an exodus of practitioners from criminal legal aid work. Over the last five years, we've lost a quarter of our workforce. Last year, we lost about 300 more. More worryingly, about 40% of those were criminal juniors uh, operating as prosecutors and defenders. And that's unsustainable if you want to secure the long-term future of the criminal bar and continue to deliver an adequate public service. So what happened was government recognizing that this crisis wasn't going to go away, uh, tried to nip it in the bud by commissioning an independent review of criminal legal aid, and that was chaired by Sir Christopher Bellamy. He reported in November of last year, we saw the report in December, and everything that we've done since has been a reaction to that report, some of which we embrace, we think they are positive changes, but we don't believe for a moment that they go anywhere near far enough to ensure that we don't continue to hemorrhage talent from the ranks of the criminal bar. And I, and I think it's true um, that it's, it's not just criminal defence barristers, we need to be clear, this uh, crisis is also affecting solicitors. Uh, and I notice the Law Society website explains at the moment that solicitors are under the current proposal are to receive a fee increase that's 40% less than the bare minimum to keep the system functioning that was recommended by that Bellamy review and the legal aid firms have halved in 15 years, and there's a crisis of scarcity of duty solicitors um, in all sorts of, uh, all, all areas of the country. I mean, this, this, this has been brewing for years, hasn't it, Joe? This is not something that has just occurred during your period in office or even over the last year or two. This really can be traced back to um, the financial crisis and the years of austerity and the really massive cuts in public expenditure from 2000 and 10 onwards when i was when i became dpp in 2003 we had a period in which every year our budget was increased because that was the the period during which the labor government was spending more on on public services but from 2010 onwards i mean i can speak most with most knowledge about the cps the cuts to the criminal justice system were absolutely brutal the cps lost over a third of its frontline prosecutors um, around a third of its budget. And, and it just seemed inconceivable to many of us that an organization like the CPS and the Defense Bar would be no different, could be expected to maintain a level of service in the face of, uh, 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 of those sorts of cuts. Imagine if the NHS service, the, the National Health Service lost a third of its frontline doctors. I entirely agree. The problem that we're facing afflicts both prosecutors and defenders. And as you know, Ken, the vast majority of the criminal bar wear both hats at different times. And so we've got a lot of people who prosecute and are finding that the fees that they're paid simply can't pay their bills. Those who defend are in a, exactly the same position. And consequence is that people are drifting away from doing prosecution work and drifting away from doing defence work and moving into other areas of law. I mean, the strike effectively began in June, I think, and, and then more recently it's, it's escalated in terms of the measures that are being taken. 
what impact is the strike having day to day in, in Crown Courts and Magistrates' Courts? And, and is there any prospect at the moment, do you see, of a settlement? Well, in fact, we started our action as early as April this year by refusing to do what we call return work. That means we weren't covering cases for our colleagues as a way of protesting against the government's uh, unwillingness to, in fact, increase fees as we expected them uh, to be increased in accordance with the Bellamy Review. There was a lot of delay. Following that, we had a further ballot uh, in June of this year, and that was a ballot to say, do we want to actually go on strike? And that's a big step for criminal barristers to contemplate, because going on strike means you are effectively walking away from clients, witnesses, victims, and the rest of them. And it's not an easy decision to make. What we've seen over the last couple of months of strike action is actually quite a lot of damage done to the criminal justice system. And we, we have taken this, uh, this, this, this action with great regret because it's not something that we relish. We know that people will suffer in consequence, but at the same time, we've reached a point where government simply is not listening and not responding as quickly as we need them to because we genuinely are in the midst of a national emergency so far as the justice system is concerned. I mean, members of the criminal bar are not necessarily um, life's great radicals. I, I, I was chair of the CBA for a few months in 2003 before I became DPP, and there was a legal aid issue at that time, Joe. I can't remember the precise details, but there were one or two siren calls from the circuits suggesting that... the the CBA should go on, the CBA should call a strike. And the general reaction was one of horror, this kind of madly radical, insane, deranged um, demand. And it, and it just wasn't taken seriously. But that was back in 2003. And things have come to a real pass, haven't they? If thousands, literally thousands of practitioner criminal barristers are voting to go on strike, that's a, that's a sea change. And what is it, do you think, in the government's attitude that is contributed to this this really, really extreme state of affairs? I think the problem's been that successive governments simply haven't given any priority to the criminal justice system. We're regarded as the poor cousin of the more uh, of the just justice system more broadly. And as a result of that, what's been happening is that people have been hobbling along as practitioners with a hope and a prayer that eventually some government will pay attention to what's going on. I think what's brought things to a head now is the impact of successive real income cuts on the junior bar. And this is what's really caught the attention of the public. When we tell the public that the average uh, median income for someone in the first three years of their criminal practice as a junior is no more than £12,200, people realise actually how bad the situation is. And that works out on a 40-hour week to be about £6.25 an hour, well below minimum wage. And it's something which, in fact, is contrary to the impression that people have broadly about lawyers, that they're all doing rather well, thank you very much. The truth is, of course, in criminal legal aid, it's nothing like that. And that's why we're seeing, uh, with the hemorrhaging of young talent from the junior end, real concern amongst barristers that we are now moving into an era where there simply won't be enough of us to be able to service the work. Let me, let me, let me make a counter-argument, which I think is sometimes made by the government. And I've heard it made by some barristers, actually, that there, is a, that there has been traditionally... Certainly, when I say traditionally, certainly over the last 20, 25 years, a problem of oversupply at the criminal bar. So that when you uh, extrapolate um, average earnings in the way you've just done, th th those will include the earnings of people who just haven't got very much work. And that if you look at people who are busy, people who have the sort of practices, which means they're in court day in, day out, they're earning 
um, really r- rather good income. So how, how do you respond to that? I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it, to talk about average um, salaries for barristers because, you know, you might have one barrister who's in court only two days a week and another barrister who's in court every day. And maybe the barrister who's only in court two days a week isn't isn't very good and, and can't get uh, cases. Well, it's certainly true to say that working at the criminal bar is an incredibly competitive, it's an incredibly competitive industry. And it may well have been the case that in the past there were more barristers than were needed. The reality today is that we have a dearth of defenders and a dearth of prosecutors. Anyone who speaks to the CPS will know, for example, that they make multiple phone calls to try and get cover for cases, to prosecute cases up and down the land. And solicitor firms who are looking for someone to act as a defence barrister equally are struggling to find anyone who's willing to do it. And that's because people have effectively uh, voted with their feet. With the poor legal aid fees and not being addressed with any urgency over the last two decades, there have been decisions made by barristers, and these are practical economic hard-headed decisions that if they can't pay their bills through criminal legal aid work they will go elsewhere so what we've seen is a shrinkage in the pool of available barristers and i'm afraid what that means is that with a near 60,000 backlog of cases still in the system there is no way in the world that we're going to be able to service that work with the shortage in manpower that we're currently suffering that's why we say it's essential that government treats this with the urgency that it deserves I mean, you've mentioned, Joe, the, the problem of public perception. And I think all of us lawyers have, have had dealt with that right from the beginning of our careers. And the unpalatable fact that while the public generally revere, obviously, NHS workers, they just don't have the same sympathy for lawyers, uh, whether they're prosecuting or defending um, in the public interest uh, as a public service. And, and the cynical, ill-informed view is that all lawyers are rich self-interested individuals, and you've just explained, obviously, why that's a grotesque distortion of the truth. I mean, I've always thought one of the problems may be that people think they may get cancer, uh, and therefore the idea of paying doctors a two-tier service so that all the good doctors aren't working for the NHS, people think that would be outrageous, but people don't think they're going to be charged generally with a criminal offence, rightly or wrongly. And, and so it's hard, isn't it, for someone in your position, I mean, you're effectively acting as a shop steward for um, the criminal bar. Um, how, how hard is it to get over that public um, misconception? I mean, it's un- entirely understandable that public sympathy will naturally gravitate towards those people who work in industries or sectors where the public have an acute need, like nurses or doctors or even teachers. It's that much more difficult, therefore, for us to overcome the caricature that's been created of lawyers by the press, uh, giving the impression that all lawyers are doing extremely well financially when it's simply not true. And I think the other aspect of this is that we haven't been particularly good at organizing ourselves. We're not a union, we're an association. And that means we don't operate in the same way that, for example, teachers, doctors, rail, rail workers or others actually organize themselves. So it's always difficult to get our messages across in a concerted way, and it looks like special pleading. My experience of working with my colleagues at the criminal bar is that they are all, to a man and woman, earnest in what they are doing. They genuinely believe that they have a public calling to prosecute and defend cases. What they're not so good at is, in fact, crowing about their successes and the fact that they do materially add 
to stability in society. Because if we don't have a healthily functioning criminal justice system, I'm afraid law and order generally within society is going to come under strain, if not break down. It's getting that message across to the public, which has been difficult in the face of what has often been a hostile press. Well, I, I, I certainly think that's right. And it, it, it's, a, it's a question of getting people to see that, you know, whether they like it or not, the time may come one day when they have need of a decent functioning criminal justice system. But so far as public perception is concerned, there is an issue with the strike, isn't there, from a public perception point of view, which is that, you know, people who are involved in criminal justice, whether they're defendants or, or witnesses, are uh, experiencing extraordinarily stressful events. I mean, imagine someone who's got a trial pending and they're, they're due to give evidence and they're nervous and uptight and upset about it. And they, they turn up to court and they're told, well, you've been waiting two years for this trial, but it's not going to happen today because the barristers are on strike. That's a very difficult message to get over to people who are already in, in a very unpleasant um situation, isn't it? So, I mean, what's what's your answer to critics who say that barristers really should be among a category of workers, if you like, who shouldn't be going on strike because the consequences of their strike action for other people uh, is so serious and, and, and so distressing? Well, we've, we've heard uh, murmurings about this from government to uh, create a cohort of professions which should, in fact, be effectively forced to work. And I think that's detrimental to democracy. I think it's detrimental to people's basic rights to be able to withhold their labour if they feel that they're being exploited. The reality is that criminal barristers, to a man or woman, do feel that they've been taken advantage of for so many years. The workloads have increased immeasurably over recent years, and we haven't had any increase in pay. We know, of course, that there will be a degree of confusion, uh, if not hostility, from people who think that we're abandoning our post. But there's a balance to be struck here, as indeed there is for any public sector workers, which is how do you draw attention to a crisis which will have a wider impact on society and not just on the individual pockets of those who are striking, without in fact taking action which must of necessity involve some sort of disruption. And I can tell you this, that with 1,500 days now being uh, not untypical for rape and serious sexual offence victims having to wait for their day in court, and 700 days really being the average for other types of people who are waiting for offences to be resolved at court. It's not the barristers who have caused the problem. The problem pre-existed anything we ever did. What we're doing now is really drawing public attention to it so that it has a solution which is put into place very quickly. Otherwise, I'm afraid the strike action will continue until the government starts to pay attention. Yeah, and there's also a practical problem, which is that most members of the criminal bar are self-employed um, in any event. And so um, <laughs> you can't force self-employed people to work. Absolutely. I mean, we are, we're not employees, and therefore we have some latitude in all of this. And I think it's important to respect the fact that because we are working as self-employed individuals, we are, of course, losing money when we are on strike. And from my knowledge of working with colleagues over the last 30 years, and Ken, I'm sure you'd agree with this, most of the people that we work with have a very deep sense of duty towards what they are doing in terms of prosecuting and defending. These are not decisions taken lightly, and you've got to push people to the extreme before they will effectively turn their back on a court and say, I'm not going in today. Yeah, well, that's certainly certainly true. And I, I can remember clearly, um, and, 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 and still this is my experience, that when you occasionally come across someone who doesn't seem to be taking their work seriously, it sticks out like a sore thumb because it's so unusual and so rare. But it's not in, it's not entirely clear, is it, Joe, that the Lord Chief Justice 
agreed with your statement of the constitutional position because um, he, um, I think some four or five weeks ago now, maybe a little longer, issued a, a, a public letter to Crown Court judges. It was in late June, actually, ordering them not to take trials out of their lists when alerted that barristers wouldn't be attending because of strike action. And effectively, he seemed to be encouraging judges in those cases to report striking barristers to the senior presiding judge of the relevant area. That's the senior judge on, on, on whichever circuit the case occurred in, with a view to referring barristers to the Bar Standards Board for disciplinary action. Um, and he also appeared to threaten in this letter that striking barristers might face financial penalties in the form of a wasted costs order applied for by the CPS if they didn't turn up to a case as a result of strike action. Um, this was a, a very, very notable intervention by the Lord Chief Justice, and he obviously wanted his views to be made public, and he wanted as many people as possible across the legal profession and the judicial profession to read this letter and presumably to act upon it. What, what was your reaction as chair of the CBA, um, in one sense, co coordinating strike action, when you um, switched on your computer um, and opened up this letter? And before you answer that, Joe, of course, the Lord Chief Justice did that or issued that letter, while at the same time stating that the judiciary was not a party to the dispute between the Criminal Bar Association and the government, implying neutrality. So what was your feeling when you, when you read the letter? What... Just tell us. Just tell us what was your visceral reaction? Surprise and disappointment, uh, as uh, it's been pointed out, uh, that the Lord Chief Justice occupies a very important role within our constitution. He's got to be apolitical, and the guidance that he gave started with making the observation that judiciary do not get involved in industrial disputes. But unfortunately, the direction that he gave seemed to give the impression, at least, to the criminal bar that he was um, uh, encouraging judges to collect the names of strikers and then provide those names to the senior presiding judge, as well as reminding people that they might be on the receiving end of financial penalties by way of wasted costs. And there was a very strong reaction from criminal barristers to that, both prosecutors and defenders. We had a letter to the Times that was signed by many, many QCs saying that they were very unhappy with the position taken by the Lord Chief Justice. And then we went about getting advice from very senior civil practitioners to find out what our rights were, because barristers are not very good actually at protecting their own rights. They spend too much time protecting the rights of others. And we discovered that we had a right under the European Convention, Article 11, that protected our right to associate with each other and to go on strike. So there was a pushback to that. And I have to say, the story ended rather better for us because eventually the senior presiding judge indicated that he wasn't going to be collecting any more names of anyone who was on strike. And we uh, clarified with the Crown Prosecution Service that they weren't going to be seeking financial penalties against us, which gave us a, a huge sigh of relief. And it also restored the balance, I think, between the bar and the judiciary, because it was important for everyone to understand that there are limits to what we can take in terms of feeling that there is a sense uh, that uh, judiciary might be weighing down on us. We are fiercely independent individuals as practitioners, and we wanted to guard that position. And I think we succeeded in doing so. I mean, this was a very this was a very dramatic moment, wasn't it? Because what happened in in essence was that within a very short time, the the, the two apparent threats which had appeared in the um, chiefs in the Lord Chief Justice's letter 
that of names being collected and sent to the Bar Standards Board, and and and, and secondly, the CPS claiming costs against barristers on, on strike. Both of those threats were disavowed. They certainly were, but they were disavowed, uh, Ken, as a result of us reacting to them and reacting to them in a measured and thoughtful way rather than in a visceral way. Although our individual feeling was that this is unfair, we went about uh, responding to it in a proper fashion. And that means we acted like lawyers, getting advice from other lawyers who knew better than we about our rights and then putting it back on the judiciary so that they were aware that actually what they needed to do was to remain impartial, remain out of this dispute and not be seen, at least by some quarters, as aligning their, themselves too closely with the position of government. Now, government's been very hostile to us throughout this strike action. No surprise to anyone, because, of course, government doesn't want to do the right thing to ensure the long-term sustainability of the criminal justice sector, because as far as they're concerned, it's not a financial priority. But in this game, as it were, of chess between government, judiciary, practitioners like myself, it's really important that everyone remembers what their respective duties and responsibilities are, and that people don't trip the wire. We've got to keep that balance going. Otherwise, our constitution, I'm afraid, is in peril. Yeah, I think that's an important point, Joe. Just some background for people who, who don't know. The Lord Chief Justice is the head of the judiciary of England and Wales. That dates back to the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005, which made the Lord Chief Justice the top judge. Previously, the Lord Chancellor had been the top judge. But the 2005 Act made the Lord Chief Justice the President of the Courts of England and Wales and vested in his office many of the powers previously held by the Lord Chancellor. And the reason for that was a concern about separation of powers. The, the Act reformed the powers of the Lord Chancellor and removed the ability of the holder of that office to act as both a government minister and a judge on the basis that it was a breach potentially of Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights, breach of separation of powers. And the aim was to ensure that the powers of the Lord Chancellor or Secretary for Justice would have limitations in terms of the ability of the Lord Chancellor or Secretary for Justice to control the Lord, Ch Lord Chief Justice and to, and to intervene over the courts. And so, I mean, it is a surprising intervention that, that Lord Burnett made in issuing that letter. And I mean, is the suspicion that he was being lent on by Dominic Raab? Well, we'll never know, uh, because in the nature of these things, you only get to hear what people tell you. And what I would say is this, is that from our perspective as criminal barristers up and down this country, we see our interests and the interests of the judiciary as very much the same. Speaking to judges and hearing from judges about what we are doing by way of strike action, I've uh, got the firm impression that most judges fully appreciate why we feel we need to take these steps, because they know if we have a continuing depletion in the number of barristers operating within our jurisdiction, their jobs as judges are going to become infinitely harder to discharge because not having people in front of you when a case is called on is deeply embarrassing. Just to give people an idea of how bad it's got, in the year leading up to March 2022, there were 1,000 plus trials in this country that were adjourned at the very last minute because there either wasn't a prosecutor or a defender available. And judges are paying attention to this. So in fact, what we've seen is generally speaking, no hostility from ordinary judges in Crown Courts, but in fact, a sort of understanding that we have to do this. And this is why there was a disconnect 
which was created in consequence of the directive that was given by the Lord Chief Justice. I think judges on the ground felt rather differently about it. Yeah, you, you mentioned the the letter that was written to the Times subsequent to the Chief's letter, um, and it was signed by a number of very well-known, very well-known, very respected silks at the criminal bar, including a number of past chairs of the Criminal Bar Association. That, that letter was couched in very strong terms, very strong terms. I can't remember any occasion in the past when a group of senior barristers have written to a newspaper um, in terms critical of a, a, a senior judge and, and certainly not uh, quite so critical as that. Do you think this episode has damaged the relationship between the Lord Chief Justice um, and the bar? Well, it was indeed an unusual step, but it was an unusual step taken by senior practitioners because they felt so strongly about it. In the midst of industrial action, to feel that there was another front being opened with somebody from the judiciary in such a senior position was a great disappointment to people. I think that we're over it now. I hope that in a sense, as often is the case with these uh, spats, if I can put it that way, once you get past it, everyone sort of rebalances and recenters. And everyone then reminds themselves of what their remit is. And I think now we are in a better place than we were a month or so ago. But it was very important for there to be pushback on this. Otherwise, we felt the independence of the bar was genuinely being undermined. And that meant that we couldn't do our jobs w without the sense of being pressured by uh, people in the judiciary. And that wouldn't be fair on us. And it wouldn't be fair on the people that we represent, whether they're victims or clients. We've got to be able to do our job with a degree of autonomy and without any sense of pressure from above. I'm going to ask a question now for, for both of you, um, really, to, to compare the state of our criminal justice system today with the one you remember from earlier days. Uh, Ken, as you've mentioned, you were chair of the CBA also, uh, I think 2002-03, and then you became DPP for five years between 2003-2008, which now perhaps seem like sort of halcyon days compared with the current state of play. And Joe, you've, you've been at the bar since 1993 and a silk since 2012. So each of you, uh, Ken first perhaps, I mean, how, how would you compare um, the situation 20 years ago with the one you see today? Well, it, it was very different, clearly, Tim. I mean, I, people remember that when Tony Blair became prime minister, he and Gordon Brown promised to stick to the previous major government spending plans for two years. So that took us through to around uh, 99, 2000. And, and, and then they started to invest in public services. And when I became, and that included in legal aid, there, were, there, were, um, there was money put into legal aid uh, from 2000 onwards. When I became... DPP in 2003, we were taking on um, people, we were employing prosecutors, we were employing people, some people from the bar to come and act as crown advocates in the CPS. And we had an increasing budget year by year. We were able to train people. We had specialist rape training, rape prosecutor training programs, special training programs for people uh, dealing with particular types of crime in other areas. And, and that was all good. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to have a highly skilled, motivated, well-paid, enthusiastic 
workforce. And I, I was extremely lucky that by and large, um, that's what was happening during those years. Now, when Keir, Keir Starmer took over after me, he immediately had to confront the austerity years and he had to manage a situation in which funding was drying up, in which he could no longer uh, employ new people, in which he had to let people go. As I said earlier, they lost the CPS during those years of austerity, around 30% of their frontline prosecutors, about 30% of their budget. And surprise, surprise, people started to criticize the performance of the CPS, particularly um, under Keir's successor, Alison Saunders, who was uh, managing an even more drastic period of decline. Now, now, I've never argued, and I don't argue, that, that money is everything. You know, you need more than money. You need professionalism. You need commitment. You need all, all, the, all the rest of it. But, you know, money is something. Uh, and in the end, you get what you pay for. Uh, and if the government pays peanuts for a prosecution service, it'll get a peanut prosecution service. If it pays peanuts for criminal barristers, it'll get peanut criminal barristers. And that's that's just the way it is. And I think that the the real tragedy has been the impact of austerity on, on criminal justice. And it's not just criminal justice, is it? It's let's face it, it's all the public services. We've seen we've seen this we saw the same in 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 other public services. And and but I think it's been particularly sharp in criminal justice. And for the reason that Joe sets out, and I think you also set out, Tim, you know, that no one ever won any votes, no politician ever won any votes by by promising to support lawyers. Um, and it's so easy to put, portray us as criminal defenders of criminals and uh, as as fat cats and, and all the rest of it. So very, very easy hit for a government. If it wants to save some money, what better institution to take it from than a criminal justice institution? So I think, you know, things much grimmer now you know, we hope things are going to progress and get better, don't we? But in criminal justice, things are much grimmer now than they were 15 or 20 years ago. Much grimmer. Yeah. And Joe, and Joe I, I imagine you, you have a similar story. I entirely agree with that. I mean, there's been progressive neglect of this sector, the criminal justice system, because it's not there's no political fortune in uh, trying to promote the interests of defendants or even victims, even though these days you hear the government talking constantly about the importance of victims, but of course they don't want to deliver justice for victims unless they're gonna put the money in. And I think that's really the, the problem which has become acute. When Ken was involved in the uh, Criminal Bar Association all those years ago, as he said, it was a, a objectively uh, better picture. But now we are on our knees. We're on our knees because of the neglect of successive governments. And because I'm afraid the story hasn't really surfaced about why it matters to ensure that victims get justice quickly and defendants are tried as swiftly as they can be. It's simply not a priority. And in the midst of all of that, criminal barristers talking about the fact that they are leaving in droves and need to be paid properly for the work that they do is not attracting as much public sympathy as it ought to. I think what this really forces us to do is to reflect upon why it matters to have a thriving criminal justice system in terms of the overall way in which we deliver democracy for the public. It is essential in my view that we have courts that are functioning properly and that people can get justice in a timely fashion. It's essential because it means if we don't do that, the public will begin to lose confidence in law and order. And that's the thin end of the wedge because when people hear that cases aren't coming on for three, four, five years, I'm afraid that means criminals will feel that they have a carte blanche to do whatever they like because they'll never face the music. And I think that's something the government's got to attend to, but it's got to be done quickly. Joe, one of the things we've always 
said or we always told ourselves about British justice was that it worked as well and by that I mean British criminal justice it worked as well for people without money as it did for people with money so you'd get you know the best silks the best juniors taking on regular criminal cases murder cases you know armed robbery cases whatever the cases are as with the NHS effectively yeah as with the NHS um and, and, and that was one of the things we told ourselves, that we weren't like the Americans. I mean, this is what people used to say. We're not like the Americans. You know, if you're uh, a defendant in a capital murder case in one of the southern states, you get a public defender on what used to be $10 an hour or whatever, and you got an atrocious, terrible service. But if you were wealthy, you'd probably buy your way out of trouble. What do you think are the risks here for, for us? I mean, there, there are obviously very successful criminal silks who do little or no legal aid work anymore. They simply represent wealthy people. What are the, what are the risks of us developing um, a two-tier justice system, one for the rich? I think there's a real the risk of that. I mean, just using the American... Well, it's already here, isn't it? Indeed. We well, it, it, we're, we're already there and we're descending even deeper into it. I mean, using the American example... The American Constitution was founded on the idea of giving a great priority to liberty. And yet when you look, as you've said, Ken, at what happens in the Deep South with cases uh, which are defended by people who are very poorly qualified to do those cases with severe consequences in states where there may be capital punishment for the defendant, it's really something which frightens us over here in England. But we are heading now into a situation very rapidly where because people are vacating the field as professional, trained men and women prosecuting defending cases, what will happen is in order to fill that gap, the government will start drafting in people who simply don't have those skills and justice will be delivered on the cheap. And I'm afraid this is what happens with market forces. We're uh, living under a government that says it believes in market forces. Well, this is what happens on the ground when people aren't paid properly. They will leave and you replace them with people who are prepared to accept a much cheaper price for the for the service that they provide. Yeah, because it was because it was it was it was true, wasn't it? Um, and and still is true that, that very very good silks uh, do do legal aid work or some legal aid work. But it used, it used to be true that that the best the very best people all did legal legal. They do some private work too, but they all did legal aid work as well. And I I get the sense now that there are more people at the very top end who are simply focusing on private work because legal aid rates are so derisory. And that's a, a real problem in terms of the quality of the representation for people who don't have private money. You're quite right about that, uh, Ken. Whether it's because of a sense of noblesse oblige or because people who were very senior in the profession like Silks felt that it was important that they made themselves available to provide their services to defendants who had no money. Whatever the reason was, they stayed in publicly funded work. But what we are seeing, as you observed, is a drift away from that. And that means we're going to have a multi-tiered service. You're going to get those at the top who are privately paid, and they'll continue to do criminal work. And then you'll see the rest of the people at the bottom who are mopping up uh, the work at very low rates indeed. And eventually they will leave too. So I'm afraid what we're going to see over the next few years is a turning back of the clock to a criminal bar that was what we saw in the 1950s, 
people who were doing the job because they had family money. And for them, it was really more of a hobby than anything else to be a criminal barrister. And what we'd seen in terms of progress over the last 20 years, an improvement in diversity at the criminal bar, more women, more minorities, but often people from non-traditional backgrounds who have come into the profession, sadly, are now being forced to leave. And that's not, that doesn't bode well for the future of our democracy or the health of our legal system. I mean, that's very, that's very, that's very important, isn't it? Because um, the, 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 the composition of the criminal bar changed dramatically over the last... 30 or 40 years. I, I when I started in, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a very middle class, I'd say upper middle class white profession. I mean, if you came into the criminal bar from a state school, you were a pretty unusual kind of person. And, and that changed dramatically during the 80s and the 90s with the rise in, in legal aid. And it became a very, very diverse profession, uh, both racially and in terms of, of sex, very, very diverse. And, and I think I think you're absolutely right. One of the one of the most depressing consequences of, of of the issues we've been discussing is that that diversification will start to fail, and and you'll have to have money to come to the criminal bar. For a lot of women and minorities, Ken, they found the criminal bar a very welcoming place. It was their entry point to getting into the profession of of the bar. But uh, ultimately, these are the very same people who are drifting away, and I'm afraid. Uh, diversity is now being thrown away by this government because they don't think it's a priority. Not whatever they say in public, fact of the matter is on the ground, we are going to end up with a white, pale, male, stale profession again. And that means we are going backwards, not forwards. Well, Joe, um, it's been in many ways a rather gloomy and uh, depressing discussion, um, uh, but you've made the points very, very powerfully. And, and, and Ken and I are both very grateful for you sparing the time at what I know is a very busy time for you. So many thanks for joining us today. Many thanks, Tim. Many thanks, Ken. Thank you, Joe. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tick the follow option on the episode homepage. I think you should all know where that is. It's usually in the top right-hand corner of the episode page. If you explore the Double Jeopardy um, episode page or homepage, you'll find other episodes which should be of interest, we hope. We welcome reviews hopefully good ones and constructive criticism and we're also keen to have questions and suggestions for future episodes if you want to get in touch with us our email address is double jeopardy pod all lowercase double jeopardy pod at gmail.com thanks for joining us for this episode of double jeopardy we look forward to being with you again soon uh, and many thanks to our producer billy lawrence as always 